Open your Bible, Genesis 14. We're Genesis 14. We're going to go into a. I'm, I'm kind of going to do two things. I'm going to weave the spiritual with the physical. Um, there's going to be some physical things that's of God that we've got to talk about, and then some spiritual things that's in this chapter of God. Sometimes they interweave, sometimes they're types, and so I'll try my best to uh, get through this and you learn something for the glory of God. First of all, in, we're in Genesis 14, and we're going to deal in the beginning with verses 1 through 16 if God gives us time. And then if he doesn't, we'll um, pick up the rest. But if he does, we'll start at 17 and finish the chapter. But the first thing I want, uh, I, well, there's three. Uh, as we look at this thing, I want you to know since uh, we look at wars, I think this is the first one we find in the Bible but there's a differing views about war that people has. Um, they're what we call conscientious objectors. That means that they refuse to go to war. They refuse to join the military, or at least most of them do. They enjoy, though, the freedoms that the people who didn't believe that way gave them. When somebody tells me, well, I don't believe in war, I said, well, you don't have any problems enjoying the benefits of it. And so my, my deal is there's, if, you're, if you're a conscientious objector and you're not willing to fight for your country, you ought to be shipped off somewhere else to another country. But they're here. You know why they're here? Because they can be here under the most blessed country in the past that's ever been. And so there are conscientious objectors. Some of them are religious. In fact, most of them are religious. Did y'all know Jehovah's Witnesses? They're conscientious objectors, but they enjoy the privileges that we have. They get the benefits of it. And you could go down the line with different religious groups that oppose war. And, of course, you've got all these. Back in the, the, our, our day movement when we were the hippie movement, you know, the 70s, the baby boomers. And that day, they was all, you know, peace, man, not war. Peace, man, not war. You know, that's what they was all running around. They was high. They didn't know where they were. didn't know what they was doing. But there was one thing I could hold that sign up, peace, man, not war. Peace, man, not war. I can remember it just like yesterday. They'd have on them old flip-flop sandals and, and uh, their hair would be down about here, look like lice and rats and everything else had been in it. And, and, and they would tell you they don't believe in war. And everyone I saw, of course, back in those days, I didn't really you know, I'd never had any uh, restraints on my lips. And uh, I told them what I told you, but not in that nicer way, all right? And I, I just can't stand to see that. Muhammad Ali, who was Cassius Clay, by the way, but became a black Muslim, which a black Muslim is not a just Muslim. He is a Muslim that hates all white people. Now, he became a, what, well, just like Louis Farrakhan and some of that group. He, he became, he said, a conscientious objector. 
He would not go to war. And that was in the, in the day to where we were drafting people. They would, he wouldn't go to war. And instead of the government doing anything to him, they let him move to Canada. Stay free, move to Canada, come back to America, and beat the brains out of people every day in the ring. And that's a, I don't believe in war, but I'll beat your brains out right here. That made me sick. Makes me sick. And I hope it does you. I probably spent too much time on that, but you say, that's not biblical, Brother Glenn. Yes, it is. Ecclesiastes 3.8 says that there is a time of war and a time of peace. So it is. It's biblical. We cannot say that war is never of God. Never say that. Now, if we'd have done right all along, then there would have been no need for war, and that was not God's original intention for us to go out and fight each other. But the truth of the matter is that there are times that we cannot say now throughout the annals of time that there's never a time that God would be opposed to war. In fact, he is described as the captain of the host. He also says when he comes again, what's he going to do in the revelation? He's going to come to judge and make war. But he said... So, there's two things you got to notice. Israel's campaigns, when they would go, at least when they were in the will of God, when they were in the will of God and they went to war, a campaign of war, were all ordered by the Lord. The Lord told them to go to war. So, don't say you don't believe it. Number two, David is described in the Bible, I guess, as the greatest warrior in the whole Bible. In fact, God didn't let him build the temple because he had but so much blood. You mean they, they made songs up about David that said, Saul have killed a thousand, but David, he's killed ten thousands. That was the enemy. That was the Philistines, those that they just never could conquer. The Danites should have conquered them, but they wouldn't conquer them. They got their bags and went north because they're scared of the Philistines. And so you remember those, David was anointed as God's great warrior. So let's look at three things tonight. The war, the worship, and the witness. Number one, the war. Let's think first of all about the attitude toward war. We could never say that war is never right. Don't, don't ever say that. God's national laws, and listen, don't miss this. God's national laws or principles are not the same as God's individual laws and principles. Individually, yes, he says, turn the other cheek. Individual, he says, yes, forgive, and we do individually, he tells us that we're to help people. And if they ask for your coat, give them your cloak also. But when you come to national issues, God has a different view about that. He said, I have set my people right here in this place. And if you come against them, we fix it and have some trouble. So remember that, our attitude toward war. So here in this text, we're going to see this first war. Abram detested Sodom, and we've already went through it. We know why he detested it, right? 
And all it stood for, he, he couldn't stand what was going on in Sodom and what Sodom stood for. And he stayed out of Sodom's pleasures and Sodom's politics and Sodom's, Sodom's principles and Sodom's prosperity. He just stayed completely away from that ungodly place. But Sodom stayed there just the same. And Abram was willing to get involved in this scrape for his nephew Lot's sake. Sometimes God gets in, into it and God sends his angels to get into it with the devil because of his son's sake. Aren't you glad about that? But here, for Lot's sake, Abraham gets involved. We have as a nation done that on several occasions you say, well, they're way over there. We don't need to be over there helping them. There's probably some times we didn't need to be there. But there were some times if we hadn't be, been there, you'd be communist right now. If we hadn't been there, you'd be a socialist right now. If we hadn't have been there, you'd be under a dictator right now. Because, brother, let me tell you something. They're a, they're a, they're a, give me, they're a give me crowd. They got, I'll take this and I'll take that. And I'll take this, and I'll take a little more. They don't stop with taking just one thing. You all got that? Your attitude toward war. I want you to be able to talk to those folks at work that don't have enough sense to know about it, all right? Tell them what the Bible says. During World War II, there was a young man. And you remember World War II, you, you got ration cards. Well, I don't remember it quite. Brother Steve probably does, but I don't quite remember it. But uh, uh, some of you, I don't, I don't think we'd have anybody here that remembered ration cards, but maybe if you do, holler at me. But uh, uh, you, you're going to have to have a little age on you. <laughs> but uh, they'd get right. If you wanted sugar, you had a ration card. If you wanted gas, you had a ration card. That's all you got. It didn't matter where you had money or not. You got it, and not only did you get it, it was at inflated prices. All with me? And so, there was a, during that time, there was a young man that stood and said he was a conscientious objector, and he stood before the judge and was asked whether he would do anything to help the war effort, and he refused, and this is what his answer was, my kingdom is not of this world. The very wise judge said, very well, we'll give your ration cards to other people. Like that, don't you? Because, listen, you can't expect to enjoy the blessings of war unless you're willing to have the attitude God has about war. Now, not all of our wars have been just. Not all of our wars have been right. Many of them have been political. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But look in 1 Samuel 17, 29. Don't look there. But, let, but just let me tell you what it says. You remember when David went up there to check on his boys and Goliath was running out there every day, every day, and howling at them and said, you bunch of cowards, you bunch of chickens, I can put you all down. Nobody can whip me. I'm this big nine-foot guy. I can take you on. And David heard that. He couldn't stand it because he was making light and making fun of the Lord God. He said, that's our God. That's our nation. He's mocking us. He's in our land. He's cursing our God. And this is what he said. Is there not a cause? And he put his arm around and went down there and chopped that old boy's head off. 
after he stoned him and the victory became ours. No one has a right uh, to say, I do not believe in war. Abraham, Abram, as he's still called now, we'll get later to his called Abraham, but Abram was not a warmonger. He was not bloodthirsty. But war now had a reason, and war now had a time. So Abram did not relish the idea he was not a war warrior. He, he didn't know much about it. He, he, he was not a fighter. He'd not done that. But he now knew it would be necessary. So you remember that he had to go to war. During the Persian Gulf War, was it 94? I believe it was 94. We went to war with Iraq. Y'all all remember that, right? And in just a, and of course, ignorantly, we announced it to the whole world we were coming. Isn't that a smart move? There's not, you read the Bible, you'll not find any military head that ever did that. Surprise is your best tactic. But anyway, we went to war in Iraq. We got, we just, in just a few days, we had it blowed apart. We had them running like rats. And George Sr. said, stop. And you see what we're doing today? If we'd have finished that war, we would not be fighting the wars we're fighting today. There'd be no ISIS. But he wouldn't finish it. I don't know why. I have my ideas. It also happened in Vietnam. We had the Vietnam. We could have conquered it with just almost nothing on our part. We could have just consumed it. And yet we got so close and then they said, pull back. It wasn't the generals who wanted to. It was the politicians. We did the same thing in Korea. My dad said that we were all ready. We knew we could finish it. We knew we could take it. We were in position. We'd fought our way to position. We could win that war. Men had died. But then they politically said, stop. And that's why that little tinker toy squirt that marches his, marches his people down and makes, makes, makes his people come and cheer them. And that's all staged. Won't you know that? We wouldn't have to be dealing with him. Wouldn't be because we would see. Do you know South Korea has had the greatest Christian revival in modern history in South Korea, and North Korea hates them not for, for the reasons of the past, but for the reasons of the present. That now they love the Lord Jesus Christ. And they hate communism. Who doesn't? And yet we've allowed it almost to come right back. We give it a good head start, didn't we? We at least became a socialist mindset. Those protesters, if you were to set them down and put the socialist agenda in front of them, they'd line straight up with it. I guess I need to move on. 
There, uh, don't you notice that that was attitude to war, but now don't you notice the aggression of war in, in chapter 14. Abram, this peace-loving man, now we're going through verses um, 1 down to verse 16. This peace-loving man, he kept getting news reports of some war rumors. There was some aggression coming from the east. And they didn't have Fox News or, or NBC or, or they didn't have cable or, or, or they didn't have taxi cab. They didn't have anything to get newspaper. They didn't have a mailbox outside. They, they, they wasn't able to get the news that, you know, we, we do today. And so uh, he would just hear things. And so he began to hear what was happening because he wouldn't go near that place. And he began to hear that there was a lot of aggression coming from the east and so notice the coalitions that's here, reminded us here in the Bible. Look at the coalitions that's, that's given to us. They're all taught to us right here. And it said, you know, it, it, it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Omar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Birah, king of Sodom, and with Barsha, king of Gomorrah, and with Shinam, king of Admah, and Shemibah, king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. And all these were joined together in the vale of Sidim which is the salt sea. What we call that today? Dead sea. Now, if you go there now, and those of you who've been to Israel with me, you've seen it. If you go there now, it is absolutely desolate. Desolate. The Dead Sea is shrinking about a foot or two a year. Because the Jordan's going smaller, of course, they're irrigating it all the way, 80 miles, all the way back to the Sea of Galilee, or 90 miles. And so it's growing smaller, and so the intake of it is getting less, and so it's evaporating more. And uh, we had, they, there's lines marked to where it used to be. In fact, where you drive on a road now, the Dead Sea used to be there. So obviously during that time, there, there was a veil there or, or like a valley. God had kind of created a valley and there in that valley, it must have been a place for farming. It must have been a place for grazing. It must have been a, 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 a maybe it was a wooded place, but that's where they come together in Sedim, which is down near the Salt Sea. In fact, it is right past it um, just in a uh, I don't know five miles I guess you would say from it in that particular area so the five kings of these sinful cities they get together and they have an alliance to stop the aggression Sodom was at a prosperous trade intersection in other words there were two vias there was the via by the sea, the via Mara. And that meant, when I say via, that meant they come down from the north, sometimes from the east, and they would come down and they would split and they would go through the valley of Jezreel where Carmel was and they would get along the Mediterranean Sea and they would go to Egypt that way and we used to could go that way too until the Gaza Strip ceased to be um, a part of our 
journey. And so there was another trade route. When they would get there to that valley of Jezreel, the valley of Megiddo or the valley of Megiddo, which is a lush, beautiful valley. Uh, it's long, uh, it's wide, but uh, it, it's, it's beautiful. When they would get there, the other one would split and they would go the other way. They would go down the Jordan Valley and they would come across uh, by the Dead Sea and all the way below the Dead Sea until they got to the uh, Gulf of Aqaba and then they would even go further on down uh, to the Persian Gulf. And so we, we, we know why that Sodom was so important to these kings because it was a trade route. That's where they got their stuff. That's where they bought their stuff. Stuff they'd never seen before on the backs of camels. Little shops set up on tents, and, and, and they would go there. It was a trade route. If they had something to sell, that's who they sold it to. And if they had something good, they would buy it. And so they made their money there. They also um, bought things they needed from there. So the trade route, any of those areas, that's why Megiddo has been destroyed so many times we can't even number them. Just keep building on it, 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 building on it. Building on it. Because it was a, it overlooked the valley of Jezreel and that was why everybody wanted it because that was a main intersection of trade routes. So people fought over those kinds of things. As long as there was water there and it was a trade route, just be ready, there'd be a fight. Okay? That's the way it was. So I, I, I tried to think of an illustration today and I just couldn't think of it. But I think it's kind of like you know, starting to Walmart and it's closed and you have to go to Kmart. You know, it's something like that. But these five kings in these sinful cities joined together to stop the aggression. Now, Sodom was at that prosperous trade intersection. This is in the ancient world, remember. We're way back there 4,000 years ago or so. And so, notice this. War is when somebody wants something that's not theirs. Would you agree? They want something that's not theirs. If you have freedom, they want to take it away from you. That's not theirs, but they want to take it away from you. If you have land and it, they see it would be profitable to them, they want to take it away from you. And if they're powerful enough, they will. And throughout the annals of time, that's exactly what's happened. City after city after city. And that's why they'd tear them down and burn them up and wouldn't leave anything there and build on top of them so they could say, they destroyed, they overcome. We now are the mighty ones of this city. That's what they would do. Have you ever noticed that when we have to go to battle, it's because somebody wants something, it's not theirs? ISIS wanted Syria. ISIS wants Turkey. They already have most of Iraq. And they're getting back in from Iran. And so they causing all this destruction. All those refugees, not all of them, some of them are terrorists planted. But all those people have been bombarded with bombs because ISIS wanted something that wasn't theirs. You know why there's problems in Israel today? Where there's the West Bank 
The West Bank is the area that's a Palestinian uh, area that, that they occupy. Uh, that's occupied territory. That's what that's called. And it's on the West Bank because it's on the other side of Jordan. That's, uh, that just reminds us that back in biblical times, God's people owned the other side of Jordan. They owned all the way to Baghdad. They did. Now, they never conquered it all, but they was given it all by God. And so, uh, this coalition was formed to stop their aggression. And notice what we don't see here. Do you see a prayer meeting anywhere in there? Mm -mm, mm, no. You don't even, do you see anybody that says, God, what's your will? No. No. But you know what they tell you? When somebody's about to make a tragic mistake, they'll cover it with, well, I prayed about it. Well, so what? If it's not the will of God, don't matter where you prayed about it or not. Amen. And then somebody said, well, I just know that this is the will of God. I said, if it breaks the word of God, it's not the will of God. Amen. It contradicts the words, not the will of God. I don't care what you say. And so, this is what happens here. They had to stop. There's no prayer. There's no seeking of God's will. But in the background are two believers, okay? One is very worried. The other is praying a lot, okay? Look, you have a worried backslider. His name is Lot. You have a praying believer. His name is Abram. Lot was concerned over his family, over his future, and over his uh, fortune. He just knew if they come down there, tore that place down, he'd lose everything he'd give everything up for. He had him a big political job. Things were going good, he, at least materially. And then you had Abram who was praying and watching and waiting as he looked and knew a war was coming. And that was the second thing. There was coalitions, but then there was conflict, verse 3 through 9. There was conflict. It seems Kettle Omar, who and his war machine had been oppressing these people for 12 years. If there was somebody he thought he could take, he'd just go take them and take them over. And, and until finally, these cities and these towns began to have enough. They'd had enough. They'd been fed up. So they said, we got to do something. So in verse number five, don't, don't you notice that the scripture says here is, is this guy's taking over everything. In the 13th years when they rebelled, 14th year, here he comes. He's coming down for war. Now, Abraham's already praying, I believe, up in verse number 18. He's already praying because he knew this thing was coming. And, and notice, he smote the Rephaim in Asheroth. Now, you say, why is that important? The Rephaim was giants. But the giants could not handle this war machine from the north that had four kings that was coming against these five little old bitty uh, nothing kings, okay? And so he swooped down, moved down one by one. Every time somebody rebelled, he'd take them over, kill whoever he had to, take their goods, and then own their city. And he tried to refame, and, 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 and the giants couldn't do a thing with them. They, they, they just couldn't handle them. And these five kings was ready to pit their forces against that, little, uh, that, that big alliance of those four. So they met them, and notice what it says about them. They met them 
in Sidim. You see that? Verse 3. They were joined together in the vale of Sidim, which is Salt Sea. That's where they met. So obviously, Abraham was down below that. That's why I say there was a lush place. He could have been on the other side. There could have been several places he could have been. But most of the area was a land of milk and honey. It's judgment that's made it what it is today. And so, uh, notice that the conflict takes place. But notice what the Bible says as you move on down about that word, Sedim. It is in verse number 10. And the veil of Sedim was full of slime pits. Now, what do you imagine that might be? Let's talk about that a minute. They met them in Sedim, and it was full of slime pits, which actually means tar pits. Now, I'm not talking about the tars you put on your car. <laughs> That's supposed to be tires, by the way, in case you don't know. But this came, I believe, from the saturated under-earth oil supply that God had put in that land. Now, today, they say that they have no oil. They have no natural resources of oil, so they have to buy it. And so, when you go to Israel, you'll pay about $10 a gallon for gas. You think you got it bad because they have to buy it from their enemies. And so, they have to have something to trade back. Did you know when they, when they trade, they can't even put their name on their trade goods? They have to stamp some other name on it or countries will not accept it. Sometimes not even load it or carry it. That's how much Israel's hated in our world, folks. That's today. So those tar pits and slime pits are not there now. At least I've never seen them when I've been there. And I think that when God come down and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, there was a whole bunch of other things got destroyed too. As a result, God took that oil and blew things to smithereens. Now, he didn't have to do it that way. He could just spoke and it would have blown up, right? But he may have already fueled it and got it ready for him to strike the match. But whatever happened, you can see it was full of tar pits. Now, that gave them an advantage. Let me tell you why. When you pulled an arrow back and shot it, you either had to hit the guy or it went just on the ground, right? Or, or whoever you're shooting at. But if you put tar on that arrow and you lit it with fire and you shot that arrow into the wall, it splattered that tar that was hot and started fires everywhere. And that's how they would conquer so that was really to their advantage. Now, whether they used it or not, we do not know. But uh, obviously, it didn't do them much good because in verses 10 through 11, they collapsed. These five kings thought they could stop them. But then in the slime pits, these godless soldiers fell to other godless soldiers. What a fitting place for Sodom to fall in the slime pits. Y'all didn't like that, did you? But I thought it was good. Now, later on, we're going to see what maybe God, uh, how God fueled Sodom and Gomorrah's fire, and, and I'll talk with him. But I believe he did it with his own oil. 
This world is God's, all of it. Inside, outside, everywhere is God's. He can do what he wants to. In fact, there will be more battles to come near those slime pits. And today, God obviously has relocated most of those, that underground ocean of oil, and moved it to the south. And we're still fighting the same battles. Right? Still fighting the same peoples. They just go by different names. That's all. Still going on. And so they were captured in verse 11 and 12. The Sodomite armies couldn't win a battle and was captured along with his backslid brother Lot. And so Lot was captured for one reason, because of where he lived. Where are you living tonight? Are you, are you saying any victory in your life? I mean, is there any victory? They lost this battle. Even though they had one more coalition, than, uh, one more to their coalition than the northern uh, warmongers did. And so uh, they lost this battle, not because they were weaker, but because they were sinful. These were supposed to be God's people. But Lot was captured because he was living in Sodom. Man, I could go on for weeks. But tonight, I know you got to go home and tend to those who've got the flu. I want to ask you something. This is, I'm as serious as a heart attack. Are you living closer to the slime pits than you are the Son of God? Are you closer to the things of this world and the attractions of Sodom than you are the blessed Lamb of God who loves you more than anyone else could love you, who died for you on a cross to pay for every sin you had committed, would commit, and ever would commit. And three days later said, I'll walk out and show you I can give you eternal life. And he walked out of the grave and proved that he was the eternal son of God. If you don't know him tonight, you can get saved. If you do know him tonight and you've kind of trailed long after Lot more than Abraham, it's time you move on back down to Abraham's camp and get the strife straightened out with the herdsmen and learn to live together like God's people supposed to.